my hope is that SuperSight gives us this kind of imagination engine that will help us just by holding up our phones or by putting on glasses, kind of see futures that are more desirable, that can kind of build a conversation and build a consensus and help us to you know, prioritize um, our resources and time on kind of making it so. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Parton, and you are listening to The Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio. Now, before we get too deeply into the specifics of today's episode, I just want to let everyone know that this is indeed our final episode of 2022. But after a short holiday break, we'll be back on January 9th, 2023, with a brand new episode to kick off our fourth season of the show. And on that note, I'd like to quickly thank everyone for your support your kind words, and for continuing to share the podcast with your peers, which has helped to make this one of the most listened to podcasts in the entire world. It's been a true honor to do this show, and I wake up every day excited to keep doing it. So truly, thank you very much for listening. And now with that out of the way, let's get to our final guest of the year, David Rose, who is an entrepreneur, a product innovator, and who lectures at MIT. Now, David recently released his book, Supersight, What Augmented Reality Means for Our Lives, Our Work, and the Way We Imagine the Future. This pulls extensively on his background as a VP at Warby Parker and as a longtime explorer of ambient technologies. In addition to exploring the sci-fi-like future that we might be soon finding ourselves in where everyone walks around with augmented reality glasses that change the look of reality itself. Exploring these topics of David's book takes us on a tour of some of the incredible work that's currently taking place and some of the very pragmatic impacts that many industries are currently experiencing and will soon experience. In addition to the many opportunities that this presents for businesses and for individuals, we also explore the potential dystopian downfalls. We explore how the recent rapid adoption of GPT-3 and AI art relates to what we could expect from augmented reality and the ways in which we might stay optimistic as tech appears to gain increasingly human-like performance. There's a lot to be explored in this topic and we try to do our best to cover as much of it as we can in the hour we have. So let's waste no more time and just dive into it. Everyone, please welcome to the feedback loop, David Rose. All right then, man. Well, I think the best place to start then is to ask the very obvious question here as related to your previous book. What is Supersight and why is it important? Yeah, so thanks for the question. I think, you know, uh, if you look at major technology kind of step changes when it comes to new tech that we've experienced over the last decades. You know, it really, personal computing, mobile computing, voice-based interfaces, and then wearables are kind of, I see that as kind of the evolution of tech and how we interact with this technology. And I see that the inevitable next wave of tech is going to be wearables that change how we see. So I think we're already seeing, you know, wearables that change how we hear. 
by having like AirPod Pros that uh, can do spatialized audio and can mix audio into the world around us in more and more clever ways. And I think the mixing of what we see through our real glasses and uh, current glasses and digital layers is kind of the next exciting uh, change uh, for technology. And, you know, I was just, I, I, I just attended the Snapdragon uh uh, launched last a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Snapdragon 2 is smaller, more powerful, more battery efficient. Uh, the chipsets are um, able to render more and both uh, kind of use the compute on your phone as well as compute that's embedded in the glasses to give you like low latency uh, blending of virtual and real. And so I think it's like, it's the most interesting space if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a designer and you're interested in like, well, what's next? You know, I kind of figured out how to use Figma and design stuff for mobile. You know, this is the next design really kind of blue ocean opportunity to figure out what are the interaction, you know, paradigms, how will you point to something, click on something, you know, all of that is unknown. Yeah. And, and I guess the other follow-up question of that, that I think is the obvious one to get out of the way, given that optimism that you're expressing there is, why did Google Glass do so horrible? Snapdragon is not a small company, but Google is one of the biggest. And so for Google to flop so tremendously in this space seems to suggest that something was wrong with the technology or with the peop the masses' willingness to adopt it. How do you think about that? Yeah, well, I think Qualcomm kind of has the right approach where they are licensing their reference platform to dozens of hardware makers who are thinking about new glasses. And so, you know, they really are low enough on the stack that they're enabling a lot of this new augmented reality world, augmented reality hardware. Um, uh, but they're, they won't be the only brand that you recognize when it comes out. So there will be Lenovo and uh, Snap and uh meta and many others who who are will be promoting the hardware and then there's this whole other software layer of tools that are that kind of sit above that and the two biggest ones that you know i'm working with right now on on different projects are um unity which is a game mm -hmm. engine and also unreal engine which is you know known for for all, um you know mo some of the best games that that everyone's playing so it's kind of cool that you know if you're a game developer or a designer then you can kind of ignore a lot of the layers below the game engines. Mm. And once you do experiences that are in game engines, then those can, those will be able to be, um, you know, in the app stores of all of these future glasses. Yeah. And given your obviously extensive background working with companies that make glasses, do you think the form factor is arriving there to where it is getting ready for people to, to you know just have as an everyday pair and not something that becomes kind of gimmicky or uh, obtrusive yeah i i don't think it will i think it'll still be a few years before it's every everybody's everyday all day glasses mm -hmm. um i think there will be lots of reasons i for kind of more episodic uh uses of these like your in a new city and you need translations. So you don't have to wear those all day, every day, but those glasses will give you translations or you're in a science museum or you're in a um, national park and you just like, you want you want the world labeled in front of you and you will kind of want to learn more in a 
in a different way. Um, I think there will be glasses that you will pop on um, that uh, will be uh, more kind of episodic in the same way that you take, you know, headsets around a museum today. Mm -hmm. So actually, I think one of the most interesting kind of B2B um, opportunities are those are those situations where you don't really care that much today about weight mm. um, or about or about size because you're already wearing a helmet if you're a construction worker or um, you know working in a power plant um, you uh, you may already need safety glasses right so if you're working there are lots of jobs where you already have to wear rappy wrap around mm. kind of big awkward safety glasses there's a company uh, out of Rochester, New York called Vuzix. Um, and they have a new product called the Shield. And it's AR, it's binocular AR glasses. They're really some of the best displays that I've seen in the last couple of months. And uh, they're really marketing it as a uh, a pair of glasses that, you know, that that also protect you, you know, mm -hmm. that you that you wear when you're operating machinery. Um, the reason that Google Glass failed, I mean, I uh <laughs> my own take on that is um that the value of having a floating information that's kind of up and above to the right of the world is um in many cases a lot less useful and and more awkward than actually gluing information to the world so mm -hmm. most of these most of the ar glasses that people are working on today use something called spatialized location and mapping, which means that the glasses have a vision system themselves that are looking at the world, that are meshing the world in front of you, and that know kind of where, to, what's in front of you, who's in front of you, in order to superimpose information kind of in the context of the world in front of you. Um, so that's just so much so much nicer than having something that is just glued to your head and kind of acting like a, you know, a card that's always sitting up and to the right. But if you're working on something where you really have to use both of your hands and you can't really reference a manual or something else, it could be useful, you know, up on a ladder. Yeah. I mean, I can definitely see it becoming something like the pair of sunglasses that you carry around with you or like I always have the earbuds in my pocket and I could see it being the case where if you could make it convenient to, I don't know, fold the glasses at the hinge point or something and put it in your pocket and then pull it out when you want to use it. It would be something that I think a lot of people would keep on them daily if it was functional. Yeah. I just was sent a pair of glasses uh, from a company, a French company. Just a, just a second. I'm going to grab them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'll put them on for you, even though everyone who's listening doesn't see them. We can describe these, them. These, these look like Oakley's. Oh yeah. You can't, you can't tell from the when I'm wearing them, that there's any tech inside at all. Mm -mm. If I turn them over, you can see they have on the nose bridges, there's a, they're kind of have a thickened uh, nose bridge, which is actually disguising um, Bluetooth and a little Pico, a little projector and a little mirror. Um, but what I mentioned about kind of using them for very bespoke reasons, this is just for runners and bikers. So this just takes the data, which is on your Garmin watch which is already, you know, which is already relevant to how fast am I going? What's my heart rate? Um, you know, what's my pace? What's my performance? Um, and uh, and just and it just shows you that in the center of your of your vision. And you would say like, well, 
isn't the information on your wrist kind of close enough to um to what you're do to what you're seeing on on the um you know on these smart glasses um and they're they're called active look that's the mm -hmm. name of the name of the french brand um they're very sleek i mean they're really yeah impressive. yeah they look they look great um, yeah. and and it turns out that if you're a runner or a biker you know that when you're running you actually it actually slows you down to mm -hmm. break stride and to hold your arm up and to try to squint and to try to like it's bright outside and so like in order to get information you suffer a a, a tax in terms of your own pace and your own yeah. rhythm to get that information also potentially uh, dangerous because that moment you look away <clears throat> might be the moment a car comes to an, an intersection right, or something yeah right exactly so this is just this is a nice kind of secondary view that's a heads up display for that for that kind of information and it's not for not for you to like take to the party and when you inter interact with other people but it's you know when you're when you're running you I have a pair of swim goggles that also have uh, AR in one in one eye and I think that's a great use case because it's really hard to get that information otherwise um, about what your heart rate is and what your what your stroke rate is. Um, but if you're swimming, you're like, you, 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 you'd love more information. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned the museum briefly earlier, but like, what are some of the most, um, readily accessible industries and, and uses that you think this technology will enter into? Where do you think we'll see it first? Yeah. Um, well in the book, I kind of walk through nine different use cases for, for AR and they're kind of in the order of Kind of sophistication and also adoption so the the first one is uh the first chapter is just called identified mm -hmm. so it's this just this use case of like would you like to know the name of everyone around you you know yes or no would you like to know the name of trees and plants and bugs and um the products that you work with um the next one really talks about um kind of turning cameras back on ourselves so that we see ourselves uh and are able to interpret what we're doing in a new way. So this is like the Lululemon mirror or um, uh, situations where like sports, where we're using this, what I call super sight, which is kind of computer vision with some coaching to help people kind of see themselves and interpret what they're doing in a new way. Um, I'm a big downhill skier and um, not that great, but I did a project with Bodie Miller, who's an Olympian. And he's, he said, you know, we could use pose detection to like put you side by side mm -hmm. with an Olympic skier or a much better skier and be able to help you understand how to, how to balance your weight and how to carve better. So that's kind of an example of, uh, in chapter two of kind of being understood by this technology in a new way. And I yeah. think the third one, which we used at Warby Parker was, um, you know, the third chapter is called styled. So it's really thinking about how to use these computer vision systems to measure you, like measure your face, your pupillary distance, um, and then let you see yourself in a new way um, with the kind of AI that we're just starting to see in terms of Dolly and Midjourney, which is generative AI. So mm -hmm. you're seeing like this AI has an opinion about how you look with that new watch or those glasses or, or, uh, uh, whatever you're wearing and um 
so I think we're we're it's kind of an uncanny place for AI to be where you think, wow, is that the is that the job of Amazon to judge, you know, how I look in my outfit this morning? Yeah. Um uh, but that's definitely where the AI has come. Yeah. And it seems like there's so many potentials. I mean, it's it's almost too many. I mean, for one thing, when you were talking about skiing, I'm thinking if you have a haptic suit and you're doing a sport, you can have posture detection fed to the the AR, and then it can show you how to move your body. And then walking around the world, you're talking about Dolly and, and, and um, mid journey seems to me that you could skin or layer your reality with a different, you know, say, I, I want my world to look Picasso like today. And that's the prompt that you give it. And then you get a generative AI in 20 seconds that filters everything through that. I mean, mm. are these things that you see as directions we might be going with this? Well, I do think for for the the product world who's trying to allow they're trying to inspire you to um make purchase decisions certainly like mm. the furniture companies are uh the interior design companies companies that sell window treatments and paint you know all all of those companies are really excited about this technology because they really solve this kind of crisis of imagination that most most consumers have which is mm -hmm. like you just you can't see it right you can't you can't imagine what your living room is going to look like with a fresh coat of paint or um with different furniture around you or with new glasses or with you know anything else and actually i think the the bigger the product or the more it's arranged as a diversity of products the harder it is to imagine mm -hmm. so you know, the reason that you hire a wedding planner is because you just can't see like, well, what is it going to feel like in this place with all of those people and all of those chairs and all of the, you know, cakes and kids and dogs and cats and whatever, whatever. So you, you hire interior designers or landscape architects who do have that skill to kind of imagine uh, mm -hmm. what these things look like. But that's, I'm actually working on a project right now with a landscape design company. Um, and it's really for imagining people's outdoor spaces. Uh, and, you know, with, with, with a bunch of things that they can't really fathom and uh, in their mind's eye, but if you, they hold up their phone and they see here's two new shade trees, which you really need, and they're going to cut down on your, on your air conditioning. And, um, and here's like some beautiful uh, garden borders, and here's an edible garden in the sunniest spot on the on the landscape, and here's um, a little arrangement of chairs around a fire pit, and you know being able to see this collection of landscape lighting and furniture and trees and bushes and a bird bath too, people love it, and they just you know they can't they kind of can't imagine that they didn't have some, something that, that looked better before. So there's a real opportunity for, you know, a Lowe's home Depot, you know, all the companies that sell that stuff to, you know, promote these virtual try on 3d mm -hmm. configurators um, that know something about the world around you too. Like they've got the measurements. Yeah. And I'd, I'd hate to undermine this idea of the beautification of the world around you and, and streamline imagination, but when you talk about that, my brain also jumps to consumerism in this space and starts thinking of advertising and the current models that we use to fund most of our technology. Do you worry about that becoming a paradigm where it's like, yeah, you can use 
the subscription version, which has no ads in your vision, or you can use the free version um, that has an ad every 30 seconds. Or, you know, it, it feels like we're not doing a great job right now navigating the consumer. I would say maybe surveillance capitalism and consumer marketing inside our products, uh, our most advanced products. So do you worry about that? I do. I mean, I I try to spin my worry as towards kind of thinking about what new ad formats might be possible that feel more like product placements rather than obnoxious ads. Because I think we just won't stand for a lot of the obnoxiousness and we'll choose other, you know, we'll choose other um, options if it's really uh, abhorrent to <laughs> to us. But I do think there will be um, you know, pre-visualizations of things that you will like and that you would find interesting, or, you know, just think about how, um, if you go to a city that you, or you haven't been before, um, you, there's an issue of language, there's an issue of navigation, there's an issue of like how to organize your time. And if all of those might involve money and spending money, but if those are presented in a way that, you know, really feels like a service. Like mm. I'm not, do you call that advertising or do you just call that a, you know, you, do you call that a service? So I'd love somebody to kind of walk me, you know, walk me through a new, a new city, a new situation, recommend things that I would like to eat or to people that I would like to interact with. And that feels like a service. Yeah. Yeah, your your previous book, I think it was in 2015, dealt with the idea of enchanted objects, this idea of kind of bringing our objects to life in a sense with technology. Do you think that that's going to be a paradigm that mixes with this, that we'll see the two kind of having a, a, a complementary relationship? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the enchanted objects, um, so enchanted objects is a term that I invented kind of just to think about how you could animate and kind of infuse animism into everyday things, you know, whether it's um, soccer balls and tennis rackets or, uh, or pill caps and, and coffee tables. Um, and I think, you know, I had a, had a company called Vitality that made internet connected medication packaging for people that really need to take medications um, uh, faithfully. And I think if I were making that product today, rather than making it like a Bluetooth thing that connects with a 3G modem that looks like a nightlight in order to get data to the cloud, um, <laughs> I would probably find some way of using projection rather than having to having a lot of tech in the object itself. So I would do like a Pico projector that you stick into your, um, you know, in your bathroom or in your kitchen or wherever it is. It could see the world around you. It could mesh the world around you and then project uh, information in order to attract your attention to the things that require your attention. So it could be a, a lot more of a general purpose uh, projection mapping kind of product. I'm actually surprised that Google and Amazon with the, all of their kind of home hubs that are trying to be sprinkled around your life whether that they that they don't use more projection because like that's the i would rather have little data projectors in my you know in wherever you plug in an edison mount mm -hmm. you know lights um 
And that's, I think that's kind of the future of interface is not, not only the glasses that we'll wear that will blend information with the world, but also using data projection in a way that um, kind of brings you back to this notion of calm computing. Yeah. And, and do you see in that movement towards that direction that we might see a reduction in maybe our use of physical resources, you know, at Singularity, one of our big things is like trying to figure out how to solve some of the big problems in the world. And I would say one of those things is waste, you know, a lot of things that we just end, end up in trash dumps and heaps around the world and, you know, can't really be recycled. It seems like to me, one of the great benefits or opportunities that exist in this space is that if you don't need to create a physical object, cause you can create the virtual object, there's a lot of reduction and, and, and creating things we don't really need, saving resources, saving space, and a lot of things like that. Yeah, I really like that idea. Um, and I think that I think that is possible to, you know, not everything will need little batteries and recharging mm -hmm. and wireless connections. Instead, you can um, kind of have the intelligence built into the environment and distributed around. I don't know, I've been thinking a lot about, about um, face recognition just in the last week and wondering you know it's really perceived as as this kind of evil in terms of technology that can have this sentinel um you know knowing exactly who's where and whether they're vaccinated or whatever yeah, sick yeah. um but i was talking to a friend who uh is in charge of face recognition for a a company in central square in cambridge and uh, they're called Wicked, I think. Wick, Wicked, like not Wicked. <laughs> um, and they're doing face reco for uh, event venues. So, and he made the case to me that there's actually two good reasons that an event venue would want to do face reco. Um, one is just you can have more people passing through the turnstile or the whatever the entrance is faster so you can get people into the stadium much more efficiently so you don't actually have a a risk of people gathering in an unsecured place outside of Fenway or wherever or the or the garden um and the other reason why that, that there's a good business model for that not only a security issue um is you get people in earlier and they start eating and drinking faster so the so the venue kind of has a built-in business model for that but I, but if it's just if it's just a ticketing system, does that feel evil to you? I guess it all depends upon how, whether that is, it's possible to be hacked or shared or whether that data is, it's possible to share that data. Yeah. I mean, given the current culture that you kind of alluded to there, especially with some of the regulations that I think are coming out of Europe in terms of data privacy, do you see a lot of pushback against some of the directions this is going? Because there's a lot of people it feels like who are not ready to embrace this technology you know they they're not at mit playing in the media lab getting excited about this stuff they're out in the real world really concerned about the things you talked about which is like vaccine passports and having their privacy uh, intruded uh, you know maybe even being manipulated in terms of how they vote for an election or something do you like do you think we're ready for this this kind of technology yeah, in the book, I have this section. I try to sprinkle kind of what I call the the hazards of SuperSight um, mm -hmm. throughout the book. And in the last part of the book, I have this you know uh, diagram that tries to say, here are the big six problems that we have to worry about um, and what we might do about each one. So I'm trying to be kind of 
not only alarmist, but also um, <laughs> have some perspective on how to help. But for sure, you know, I think the six are social insulation. So we'll have more um, uh, kind of bubble filter problems. Another one is uh, state surveillance. Another one is cognitive crutches. So as you, as we kind of use new tools, um, kind of think GPSs and calculators and uh, even now Dolly or Midjourney, like how will that, how will that um, be a new uh, prosthetic that we come to rely on and that we lose all of our painting and illustration skills because we have these kind of amazing um, stable diffusion models or whatever, whatever the uh, uh, generative tech, generative AI tech is. Um, so that's kind of the third problem is cognitive crutches. Another one is uh, the the advertising problem before kind of, I call it per, uh, pervasive persuasion, um, which certainly influences the business models. Another one is training bias in the data where we're just not given uh, the right advice or good advice. And then the other one is equity and access issues, which I call super site for some, which I think the way out of the equity and access issues is actually through the business model of advertising. <laughs> you know, oh, the way, you know, the way that you get free email is, you know, for everyone is that you're kind of willing to sacrifice some amount of, um, uh, you know, awareness on these advertising platforms to know more about us. Mm -hmm. um, but still that subsidizes and I think will subsidize the cost of these devices in our homes. Yeah. Your first point there, I think you said it was social isolation. Um, that is, I think, a problem that is increasingly worrisome uh, in, in terms of how we adopt tech and especially around COVID and the lockdowns. And, you know, uh, Durkheim, the great social sociologist, talks you know a lot about how dangerous uh, loneliness is to our, our health. Um, can you say a little bit more about how that relationship between, you know, augmented reality and, and loneliness is that plays together? Yeah. So, I mean, think about when you're in public places now, most people are wearing headphones. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so it's kind of like, it's harder to have a conversation with somebody if they're, if, if they have blinders on their ears, if you will, you know, right. So, um, I think that kind of acoustic isolation that we're all choosing will become even more acute and, um, uh, and problematic uh, if most of us are wearing glasses that are showing us something different about the world in front of us. So of course, it's going to be a personalized view. And of course, you're going to have a different set of layers or lenses or whatever the metaphor is. Um, so it will mean that we won't have a, a same view of the world in front of, in front of us. So we won't be able to, to kind of remark about, you know, the, the history of um, of that church or the uh, the event that was here uh, last summer or whatever, because those are just the layers that you choose, not the layers that I've choose to see. Um, I do feel like there's a design op opportunity here for how do we swap personalized views or sync personalized views in order to be able to have those richer conversations that happen because I can now see through your eyes and you can see through my eyes. So I, I do feel like it's, it may be actually an opportunity, not just a social isolation. Although I would have said that to Bose when we were talking to Bose a few years ago when I was at IDO about opportunities for headphones would be like 
multi-broadcast like everyone what is it called when you have the rave and like everyone's wearing silent disco silent disco yeah why aren't there more silent disco opportunities to like tap in when you like walk into the coffee shop and you tap your headphones on a thing and now everyone's listening to the same whatever it is i i kind of want i want a world where we can kind of share and um have similar media experiences there's a name for this with netflix right where you can have like a netflix party mm. like where you can just decide that like let's all sync up and be and watching watch the party. same thing yeah. watch party yeah yeah if only we weren't all so busy right working on our own projects had right. time for that fun <laughs> i mean i know we're talking kind of more in the future with that but as techno optimistic as i am when i think about kind of the ways in which things like social media have created echo chambers and, and what Robert Anton Wilson would call reality tunnels where people's understanding of reality is, is literally is, you know, specific to them and they can't see outside of it. And it feels like that's moving us towards yeah, a place where we don't have consensus reality, where there's more polarization because now we don't have a uh, common ground to find harmony on. I mean, do you do you see that as a, a thing that's going to happen? You kind of alluded to it there, but I mean, it feels like you're saying we could skin our world differently and maybe create different truths within that. And that seems very divisive. Yeah, I'm really concerned about that. I mean, but in the same way, in the same way that we're able to quickly swap avatars and skins and views of the world, mm -hmm. we can also decide to share those things. Well, it feels like you're alluding to something like an empathy machine. So I can put on David Rose colored glasses, <laughs> so to speak, which you've had to have that joke before. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do think empathy machine is, is a, it is, it's a nice metaphor. I think it also allows us to, this technology will allow us to kind of more quickly toggle between other people's points of view and, and, and historical points of view. Um, I mean, I'm also hopeful that it, we can toggle also kind of in and out of work and in and out of family situations with more kind of dexterity and fast switching. So, you know, in the same way that remember in, in the earlier days of uh, mobile phones, we had these kind of long intro and long outros to our phone, like, okay, nice to talk to you. I'll see you later. Now with the availability of being able to talk to anybody at any time, um, now we just kind of jump on the phone. There's no intro. There's no, like you just say, gotta go. And you hang up because you might call them back three minutes later. Um, I think that kind of context switching um, will be really the norm where you can really be in a couple of places doing a couple of things at any time. Um, so in the same way that you're able to kind of like talk to a friend while walking through the grocery store, you'll be able to, you know, be, be on work, maybe not at work, but you'll be kind of on work as you're um, moving your body through the world or in conversations with multiple kind of hologrammed people composited into the scene at, at any one time. And I think we'll just, we, a lot of science fiction kind of alludes to these kind of futures where, you know, you'll kind of like beam in and out of situations with a lot more rapidity. Yeah. I think this speaks to your, your number three point maybe, but in terms of, of living between those two worlds, do you think we'll find ourselves in some sort of like cognitive dissonance almost like, do you, I guess, you know, with your study of vision, with your study of these technologies, 
how able do you think the human brain is capable of living in these two different worlds simultaneously? I think it's an aptitude. I think in the same way that, you know, gamers um, are able to kind of be doing multiple things at, at multiple times. Like it's kind of, it's a way that our brains will change uh, in order to kind of handle multiple streams at the same, at the same time. Um, or toggle quickly. I mean, there are a lot of people that write about the efficiency losses that happen when you when you mode switch or context switch. Um, but I think at the same time that that may be true, like we're also just getting better at it. Uh, so we're just we are doing that more. Um, and I I have real hope for kind of the inverse of augmented reality, which is diminished reality, and the ability to um, kind of take a scene have an AI that kind of decides what's the intention now that you have and what are the things that we should um, obfuscate or blur or not show you. I mean, a kind of classic one for this is like shopping in a grocery store with somebody who's, you know, gluten intolerant. You don't even want to see the options for the things that you shouldn't be picking up. So yeah, like thank you. Like, please hide all of the things that would be a bad choice right now. Um, but if you generalize that, there's probably a set of choices about, you know, when you interacting with a group of people at a conference or um, going through a bookstore um, or, you know, there's kind of the opportunity for personalization of um, how you see in many situations that could, could contribute to a calmer, um, kind of way of moving through the world. And then you just worry that like, is your AI making the right decisions for what should be, what should be blurred out? Mm -hmm. Did you see that uh, black mirror episode where uh, he's blocked by his, his, yeah. his ex-spouse and yep. she, she becomes fuzzy in all the photographs too. Scary, right? <laughs> it's a, kind of a black mirror is good at making you afraid of what's to come, but it would also be incredible kind of to, yeah, to to um who's who's the uh condo eyes woman uh, marie condo oh she, i don't know oh she's she's the one who's like simplify simplify like make your make your space look like a japanese ryokan like mm -hmm. uh you know take away anything that might distract you so like the books in the background that you have right there um like all of those would just kind of disappear if you didn't need to uh tune into any of them and so you'd have a you feel much calmer with your with your day. Maybe I like the stimulus uh, that they provide. I like that they mm -hmm. make me think about random things. I kind of <laughs> thrive in chaos. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things, we're, or I guess a lot of what we're talking about here is feels pretty sci-fi, feels pretty radical. But just this last week, GPT three chat came out. Uh, you know, to the general public, and it, the the amount of things that people are realizing that it's capable of is terrifying mostly just in that it's, its capabilities are profound like it's gonna probably change things very quickly more than we could have expected this feels like it could potentially be one of those same things do you think it is and and i mean do you feel like it's gonna be something that we gradually leave it up to a little bit for a while you know people heard the word GPT-3, they heard that phrase, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, this is going to change the world. Are we are we entering the same thing with AR and, and with this super idea of supersight? Yeah, I think we've seen like generative generative networks for uh, for for creating 
uh, arts and design and uh, landscapes and lighting mm. situation like that has been like the biggest story I think of the year. I'm mm. I mean, I'm I'm excited about text too, but I'm a visual person, and so I get kind of more excited about AIs that are able to be artists and poster designers and interior designers more than I am about people able to be kind of like writing marketing prose or whatever there or stories. Um, so I, I I don't know if have you played around with. Um, uh, mid journey or or some of the other it's, uh, ones it's very fun it's very fun yeah it's just it's amazing to to have that much kind of art direction and um kind of, it almost feels like creativity doesn't it like you are you are now the art director and you can you're picking generations of or options to generatively uh decide um which designs live on to the next uh and and iterate forward and like it's that i think is a really fun way to um to pick options and that's just it's so different than working than typically working with i mean if you if you're a product designer or if you've worked with a, an architect before like each iteration is like oh my gosh like hours or weeks in order to, and and sometimes many many hundreds thousands of dollars in order to have somebody kind of take something and and do an iteration and now like every iteration feels like it's less than a minute and almost has no cost except for your time to wait for another generation to yeah. to happen well and to that point i mean a lot of what you deal with is the idea of disruption and you're also an entrepreneur so when you see something like this coming down the line that you know a lot of my artist friends are terrified because those iterations that took weeks that you're talking about was how they made their living right right so right. so this this is a very disruptive uh tech in in their world so as somebody who makes businesses in in these kind of disruptive spaces how do you how do you navigate this how do you how do, how do you how do you kind of keep yourself grounded amongst this blur of change well, I mean, the, the question I always ask is what will be the effects, like kind of secondary effects on our culture of this kind of tech? And I think the one of the most exciting things, like take go back to Guitar Hero, like that, that taught millions and millions of people that they could learn an instrument, kind of quote, an instrument <laughs> they could feel the rush of like stepping on stage and riffing with other people and so it like it didn't teach them to get how to play guitar directly but it kind of gave them uh and inverted this learning curve so that they kind of felt confident about that and i feel like with with uh gpt3 like it's kind of more people will will be editors now, not, not the writers maybe, but they will edit the things that the, the AIs are writing or with mid journey, um, and Dolly three, Dolly two, sorry, they will be kind of more comfortable making judgments about design and feel like more dexterity and more confidence, you know, creative confidence and saying like, ah, well, I kind of like that, but I'd like it to be a different way. And for me, like that is, if we all had like 3D sewing machines that could generate any outfit we wanted for free, like think about what that would do to fashion, right? Like we wouldn't both be wearing boring clothes. Like we're wearing boring clothes right now. We would like, we would come with more, per, with more um, 
uh, kind of creative confidence about wanting to peacock and 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 parrots and you know have have more creative expression in terms of how we appear. And I think like face filters are kind of doing that right now, right? Most people are like, I want to appear like this. Like I want mm. eyelashes that are, you know, 12 inches long and flowy. Like why not? Right. Yeah. And so I feel like these tools are really changing um, our uh, feeling of confidence and our ability to kind of wander into new fields that used to be just the people who could paint and just the people that were trained at costume design and just the people that were trained in makeup. And now we're like, come on, like those, to me, that makes the world, those tools um, in the same way that like, I feel like I'm a game designer and a 3D designer. And like, I wasn't trained as either of those things, but I think with these crazy new tools, we can start to um, tinker and feel some confidence about those categories. Yeah. So in a way, it sounds like you you kind of feel like it may take away some of the elitism or the closed garden aspect of, you know, these really talented artists and help inspire the masses much more. Yeah. Think about like what what is quantified self and Wikipedia done to the medical profession? Like I grew up with a dad who was a doctor who had like a complicated way of saying everything. And He's like, well, I'll tell you what's happening there. And now we're like, we go into the doctor and we're like, look, we've Googled this. Like, I can tell you what my sleep patterns are more than you can tell me what my sleep patterns are. I can tell you what my medication adherence is. Like, I know a lot more about what I'm doing on a daily basis. And it's really changed the profession of being a doctor. And I think in a good way. Yeah. So it's kind of like spreading out the creativity instead of it being honed to a small group. It gets maybe diluted. Right. It totally democratizes things. And I do feel like if you like just take the landscape design idea, like if you have a generative AI that's showing you an amazing outdoor space and so you start spending more time outside and spending more money outside and maybe growing your own food, you're much more likely actually, I believe, to hire a pro mm. now that you've kind of become tuned into the category. And now you're like, oh, wow, I, there's some things that I don't know the answer to. Like, I really like, I want to consult, you know, somebody who's really brilliant at this. And so I, I think it could draw attention to fields that are that were once just not on people's radar before. Yeah. And it sounds like there's still room for mastery. So the people who are really passionate about these things don't have to feel like they're getting replaced because they can still be those consultants and those editors that you spoke of. Yeah. I mean, playing around, playing around with mid journey makes me more likely to want to buy a painting from a real person. Cause I've just been like staring at paintings a lot. <laughs> it's very inspiring. I mean, I, as somebody who has no visual talent whatsoever and is a man of words, uh, being able to play with these technologies and, and generate these images has been very inspiring. <laughs> uh, I, I think I it's it. happened with cooking too, right? Mm -hmm. Like as we have more, more, more tools for um, giving us creative confidence in the kitchen, like that more people are buying, um, more pan sets and more knives and more, more things for poaching eggs. And we, you know, like more kind of specialty tools as, as we have more, um, assistance in that category. Yeah. I like that idea a lot, that, that increase in confidence. Well, David, it feels like we are running up on our time here. So I'm going to, I'm going to let you kind of have these last minutes to 
maybe just paint us a picture of the future where we're going give us some closing thoughts you know kind of uh lay out anything you'd like people to know before before we call it quits here sure well i feel like the the ninth chapter of the book really tries to paint this picture of like well at the end of the day if we can all see anything at any time like what is it as a species that we really need to see like what what in what direction do we need to involve evolve like do we need to see our prey better like an owl or a hawk like no we probably can see the mcdonald's and the you know we can see we can shop and and we don't have an acuity issue when it comes to eat, eating but i do think we have a myopia problem when it comes to seeing the future so i think we're really bad at understanding the consequences of the of what we eat or um uh plant what the planet's going to look like if we don't change our behavior or uh how a, how a city could look different if it prioritized pedestrians versus cars um like those are just things that we're all a little bit myopic about and my hope is that supersight gives us this kind of imagination engine that will help us you know just by holding up our phones or by putting on glasses kind of see futures that are more desirable um, and then that can kind of build a conversation and build a consensus and help us to, you know, prioritize um, our resources and time on kind of making it so. Perfect. I love that. What a, a nice optimistic note to end on. David, thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Stephen. Good conversation. Good conversation.